0: Good morning. Hey, grab a Bible, uh, grab a smart device, uh, however you read the Scripture, and turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 38, Genesis chapter 38, in just a few moments we we will dig right in. I want to pray and then we'll get into God's Word. Thank you, God that you love us in the ways that you do. Thank you, Father, that you're patient with us. I think a better way of saying that is you are long suffering at least with me you are you'll go above and beyond um, not just once but over and over again, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful God for the opportunity we have together around the table and to be reminded of your goodness uh, to be reminded of our relationship with one another, and also to be reminded of our relationship or intended relationship to the world. Uh, Father, I pray these next few minutes that you would speak loudly, speak clearly, um, help us to be good listeners, help us to be receptive to what you would have uh, for us to learn. Uh, i so grateful, God, for your grace and your love and your mercy. We give this time to you, God, in Christ's name. Amen. Most of you who know me know that I'm a reflective person. And what I mean by reflective is, uh, for those of you who don't know, I get a little bit philosophical from time to time. Is that fair to say? My wife and kid would be doing this, right? Uh, I get a little bit philosophical from time to time. I'm convinced that too many people just kind of coast through life. You understand what I'm saying? Um, That we just get up on Monday morning, we go to work, uh, we come home Monday night, um, and we do it all again Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and and not too often. People, I mean, I don't mean to be condescending. This sound, hopefully, it doesn't sound that way. I just think that there's a lot of people, and let me offer this to you as well. There's a lot of people in the church that don't really reflect enough. Um, let me give you an example. So in the New Testament, we're told that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for reproofing, for correction. Everybody remember that verse, right, Timothy? Uh, Is that true? All Scripture? Yes? Yeah, that's what it says, right? All Scripture. Uh, I said all that to say, I'm kind of dragging my feet a little bit, because Genesis chapter 38 is um, part of Scripture. And if you don't know chapter 38... Uh, you're in for a treat today. Um, I know most of the time, uh, the Hardaway kids are with us on Sunday mornings, and I had to shoot a text to Kyle this last week and say, hey man, just a heads up, um, your, mom, your dad, your mom, you guys make the decision, but chapter 38 of Genesis is coming this week, just be aware. And if you know chapter 38, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know chapter 38, then, then here we go. Right? How many of you live perfect lives? How many of you have a perfect family? Anybody? Right? Because I I want you you can come up and give your testimony. Right? Nobody has a perfect life. No, of course not. Right? Nobody has a perfect family. We're we're getting close to Thanksgiving. That made you think about your family, right? Um, Yeah. Nobody has a perfect life. Nobody has a perfect family. In fact, we all have. We talked this morning in our Bible study, we all have some sense of dysfunction within us and within our relationships, within our families. For anybody to say otherwise, I'm not sure you're completely honest. I think we all have some dysfunction. That's why we need grace, right? We need grace. We need mercy. We need we need God's goodness. And so one of the things I think that Scripture points out to us, and this is how I want you to be reflective, at least this morning, um, is that... We see throughout the Old Testament and New Testament alike, but especially in the Old Testament, where God takes some kind of dysfunction and He makes it right. You see what I'm saying? Um, Some of you have read Matthew chapter 1. Uh, That's the wrong text, Uh, Brandon. That's the wrong one. So some of you, it's it's Judah Tamar. Uh, Some of you read Matthew chapter 1, and let me just read a portion of it to you uh, from Matthew chapter 1 if you're not familiar. This is genealogy. Most of us skip over this because most of us don't know how to pronounce the names, right? So we skip over it, but I'm just going to read a couple of verses for you from Matthew chapter 1. This is what it says. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, this is the heritage, this is the lineage of Jesus Christ. That's what we all gather, right? Right? We're here for Jesus Christ, so we all probably ought to want to pay attention to this, right? Lineage is important, especially for a Jew, but we know that lineage is important for the life and and style of Jesus, the the life of Jesus. So he goes on to say, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Those names should sound familiar to you if you know uh, your scriptures, if you've been around the church forever. But this verse 3, notice what it says. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, and about that time we get frustrated with trying to pronounce words, and we just go, hey, can we skip on to the Sermon on the Mount? Right? Or maybe the baptism of Jesus. But I want you to pay close attention to verse 3 today where it says, And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, especially that that person called Tamar, okay? Um, Tamar is not an Israelite. Tamar is a Canaanite. And if you know your Bible history, you know that the Israelites and the Canaanites don't get along very well, right? And Tamar is included in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Matthew thought it was pretty important for... um, for us to understand that God could use even the Canaanites. So who is this Tamar? If you know Tamar, if you know the, the life of Tamar, you know it's kind of messy, just like our lives. Okay. So chapter 38 of Genesis. I'm going to begin reading in verse 6, and I'm going to read for about 18-20 verses. Here's what it says. Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, "Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother." But since Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, he spilled his semen on the ground wherever he went, or whenever he went into his brother's wife, so that he he would not give offspring to his brother. What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. And Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he feared that he too would die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Now, let me stop here for just a second, and uh, let's just go back and briefly discuss what I just read. Judah, of course, is one of the 12 tribes. Judah is um, part of the lineage that Jesus will come from. But what's interesting about this particular text, oftentimes we, if you heard what I just read, you probably understand why it's not preached very often. And I would be willing to bet that there are no children churches, there are no small groups of little kids talking about Genesis chapter 38 and children's church today. Okay, um, and yet it's part of Scripture. So what are we supposed to do with this, this Scripture? Um, for those of you who haven't been here, we've been talking about these vague Old Testament Christians, vague Old Testament believers in God, I should say, followers of God, that oftentimes we as Christians, we as followers of Jesus, just kind of glance over in, in Scripture. We don't, we don't think much about them and yet this person was included in the hair in the lineage in in the life and, and times of Jesus Christ. This is this is the if you if you put the DNA in of Jesus Christ and you went to ancestry.com back would it come that says Judah and Tamar. Perez and that lineage. You follow it, it's a pretty big deal, okay? And what happens is, this is the first individual that God puts to death because of wickedness. Did you notice that? Right? We, we've seen that as a collective group of individuals, right? If, you've, if you know your Bible, you know that Genesis chapter 6 through 9 is the, the ark account, the Noah account, right? where God, it, it says that God became so displeased with the wickedness of mankind that he destroyed, he started all over again, minus eight people, right? You all know that story, right? But as far as individuals go, this is the first time that we're told in Scripture that God puts someone to death because of wickedness. Now, how important is it that we are righteous? Pretty important, I would say, right? Uh, if you ever had the opportunity to interview Ur, he would probably say it's pretty important that you're righteous. It's pretty important that you do that God, what God wants you to do. Ur lost his life because of his wickedness. Ur lost his life because he was Unrighteous. Fair enough. His brother comes along. What's that about? A guy named Onan. All right. Here we go. This is it. Thank you, Brandon. Go, next, go to the next slide. So this is Judah and Tamar. This is leveret marriage, this, the, the law of leveret marriage. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5 through 10. You'll know this as God giving Moses who then gives to the Israelite people this law called Leveret Marriage. I'm going to read just five verses from Deuteronomy chapter 25, but this will be very beneficial for us to understand Genesis chapter 38. So when brothers reside together, and one of them dies and has no son, that would be her situation, that would be Tamar's situation, right? The wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. We're going to keep it in the family. Her husband's brother, in this case that would be Onan, shall go into her. What does that mean, go into her? Shall know her. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yes? Shall know her, right? Adam knew Eve and she conceived, right? Shall know her, right? Her husband's brother shall go into her, taking her in marriage and performing the duty of the husband's brother to her. What's this? Go back. Performing the duty of the husband's brother. That's what we're talking about. This is leveret marriage, what we call leveret marriage, right? You have a huge responsibility when your brother dies, right? Okay, next verse is verse 6. And the firstborn whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the deceased brother. In other words, when Onan goes in and performs this leveret marriage with Tamar, it won't be Onan's son, right? as far as Deuteronomy 25 is concerned, Leveret marriage says this will be Tamar's son along with Ur. In other words, the genealogy passes through the oldest son. Does everybody understand that? That's important when we're talking about Jewish heritage because for a Jew, where you come from makes all the difference in the world. You follow? This is the objection of Onan. Okay, So you, you see that Onan is going to do part of what he's called to do as far as levirate marriage but he's not going to fulfill his complete responsibility. Okay? Back to Levirate marriage. The firstborn whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the deceased brother so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. In other words, you want your lineage to continue on, right? You're, if you've ever hung around any Jewish people at all, you know how important family is. You know how important structure is, right? If you've ever experienced a Passover feast or a Paschal feast or whatever, you know how important that is. If You know your Bible history. You know how important uh, family heritage is, right? But if the man has no desire to marry his brother's widow, keep going, then his brother's widow shall go up to the elders at the gate and say, my husband's brother, now catch this, this is really interesting. If the man does not want to fulfill his obligation as a leverant marriage, as a, as a brother would do to a brother, okay, who would go into his wife, who would continue this, who would propagate this, this descendants, right? If he doesn't want to do that, if he will not perform the duty of a husband's, bro- uh, if he will not go through leveret marriage, here's what she's supposed to do. She's supposed to go to the city gate, that's where all the public things take place, and she's supposed to say out loud in front of everybody, public, public testimony, keep going, go we'll back for one. My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Okay, Verse 8, Then the elders of his town shall summon him, shall speak to him. If he persists, saying, I have no desire to marry her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, shall pull his sandal off his foot. Sounds brutal, doesn't it? Have you ever smelled any flip-flops? It might, might be brutal, right? Shall pull a sandal off his foot. By the way, that's a contract among Jewish people in the Old, Old Testament, right? If we made a contract, oftentimes we would, we would transfer sandals. Shall pull the sandal off his foot, shall spit in his face. But she shall spit in his face, right? And declare, this is what do, is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In other words, you're not fulfilling your obligation. You're not, you're not performing leveret marriage. Throughout Israel, his family shall be known as, quote-unquote, the house of him whose sandal was pulled off. You've lost all rights. So maybe this is a rhetorical question, maybe not, but I, I think I'm going to ask it anyway. How important is it for a Jew to to fulfill his responsibility of leveret marriage. Can we all agree it's pretty important according to Deuteronomy chapter 25? Now remember, what we just talked about, as good New Testament believers, that all Scripture is God-breathed. That includes Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, what we just read. It also includes Genesis chapter 38, what I've begun to read. Okay. So when Ur, who is killed by God because of his wickedness, dies, it's Onan's responsibility to go into her and perform leveret marriage obligations. Right? The problem is, is he's so selfish that he goes in and he goes half speed. He goes in and he does the intercourse thing, but instead of allowing her to conceive, you all know your biology, right? Instead of allowing her to conceive. The Bible says he spills the semen on the ground. Selfish? You hear his motivation? Right? Leveret marriage meant you're going to, this this descendants is going to happen, right? This intercourse is going to happen for the purpose of having a child who will be in your brother's uh, lineage who will then get all things that belong to your brother. Right? But what I didn't read to you And what's not occurring here in Deuteronomy chapter 25, but if you don't have a a child, if you don't have somebody who's going to carry on the heritage of your brother, guess who the inheritance falls to? Your brother. It falls to Onan, somebody said. You're exactly right. Do you hear his motivation, his selfish motivation? Onan is completely selfish. Right? Now, You would think that he would learn from Ur's wickedness, and God kills Ur, that Onan would experience the same thing. And of course, he eventually dies, right? Now we have this young son named Shelah that we'll talk about, and maybe Tamar will, but he's got to grow up. And so Judah says, Hey, go stay in my house as a widow, and because of leveret marriage, and I don't want to, I want to save face, right? I don't want to go to the city gates and be exposed. Right? And so, go stay in my house, and when Sheila grows up, we will continue this leveret marriage thing with you, right? So that you won't have to be a disgrace to the entire community. Everybody follow? Okay? I want you to hold that thought for a second. Now, let me read on from chapter 38. Back in verse 11, then Judah said to his daughter in law Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up, for he feared that he too would die like his brothers. So Tamar agreed, and she went in to live in her father's house. In this case, Judah. Everybody good so far? In course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. So Judah becomes a widower. And when Judah's time of mourning was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Dulamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she, pulled off, she pulled off, uh, put off her widow's garment, she put on a veil, she wrapped herself up and she sat down at the entrance to Enam which is on the road to Timnah she saw that she <laughs> she saw she saw that Sheila was grown up yet she had not been given to him in marriage when Judah saw her he thought her to be a prostitute for she had covered her face now let me give you a little side note here as well temple prostitution was very common in the day in the ancient near east and uh, the idea of temple prostitution was not just for worship of gods. the idea of temple prostitution was to increase fertility, not among the the, the sinner and, and the temple prostitute, but among the entire flocks. Does everybody understand? So your motivation would be um, to increase the flocks, to increase the herd. So it's not just that he's after a prostitute. Remember what he's there for? He's after the shearing of the sheep, right? And he wants his flocks to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And so he goes to the temple prostitute for the purpose of the flocks to grow. Everybody understand? Okay? So, it says, when Judah saw her, this is verse uh, 15, when Judah saw her, he thought her to be a prostitute, for she had covered her faith. He didn't recognize her. He went over to her at the roadside and said, come let me into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Now let me stop here for just a second. Let's talk about the motivation of Tamar. Remember, this is Tamar. Remember, this is the Canaanite who finds herself in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Don't let that go unnoticed. Okay? What's her motivation? First of all, she's married to this guy named Ur. He dies, right? She's not going to have a child bite. By the way, what does it mean to be blessed in the Old Testament? It means to have child, a child, right? Or children, okay? For those who are barren, that means lack of blessing. So, she needs to have a child to be blessed, okay? Ur's not going to provide that that child. He's wicked. He's gone, okay? Onan, right? That's the purpose of Levirate marriage. Onan, we've already found out that he's selfish. He's got a faulty motive, and so he dies. And so maybe it will be through this young child, this third son, right? But instead of Judah providing the third son, what does he do? Judah goes to this. Temple prostitute, what he thinks to be a temple prostitute, but it's actually his daughter-in-law Tamar. Everybody follow, right? I know there is a lot of different levels or or, or um, depths to the story. Okay, everybody understand what we're doing, right? So uh, Judah is 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 not as righteous as it begins to to look like in chapter thirty-eight. He's not as righteous, and neither is Tamar. Um, this story might remind you of uh, a woman named Hagar back from Abraham and Sarah, right? So she takes it upon herself to make things proceed a little faster, and she uh, dresses herself up like a prostitute. She's on the side of the the road, and Judah comes into her, and he thinks he's going to do as all men do back in the ancient Near East, and he's going to increase his flock by going into the temple prostitute, and look what happens. So she says in verse 17... um, or verse 16, What will you give to me that you may come into me? And he answered me, I will give you a kid from the flock. And she said, Only if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? What's the, what's the agreement? Right? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her. And she conceived by him. She got up and went away. Can, this is a soap opera, right? I mean, you think Young and the Restless is bad or Days of Our Lives, right? This is dysfunction, okay? So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she got up and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. End of story. Not so fast. When Judah sent the kid by his friend to the Adulamite, right? he's going to fulfill his, his obligation to provide this young goat to recover the pledge from the woman. He could not find her, and he asked the townspeople, where's the temple prostitute who was at Edom by the wayside? But they said, there has been no prostitute here. So he turned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Moreover, the townspeople said, no prostitute has been here. Somebody did it in our Bible study this morning. Dun, dun, dun. Right? This is the time the TV show goes to commercial. Right? It's a teaser. Now what? Well, Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own. Otherwise, we will be laughed at. I will be exposed. You see, I, I sent this kid, and you could not find it. I tried to do my part, and about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the whore, is what the NRSV says. She, she's beginning to show the signs of pregnancy. Moreover, she's pregnant as a result of, of being a prostitute or being of whoredom. She's outside of marriage. We know that um, she's not married to Sheila, right? Onan's, Onan's gone, Ur's gone. She's not living the way she should. And notice what it says. Judah said, verse 24, bring her out let her be burned. Sounds like a good guy, doesn't he? Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, it was, all the, it was the owner of these who made me pregnant. And she said, take note please, whose are these? These are the signet cord and the staff? And Judah acknowledged them and said, She's more righteous than I. I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not lie with her again. I'll remind you of the New Testament, New Testament Christians, what Paul tells Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for correction, for reproofing. Man, this is a, what is this story about? Do you, do you often hear this story about Tamar being preached? Right? Not very often, right, Dinah? We don't hear it taught very often in our Sunday school classes either. Why is that? I'm a firm believer. Every time I got, in, ever since I got in the ministry, that why would we skip over hard text? This is a hard text. Would you agree? Why would you skip over a hard text if it's there for a reason? If it's there for our correction, for our reproof? So the question is, is what is it there for? What what we should what we should we take away from Judah and and Tamar? There's a couple things that I that I've jotted down for you that I want you to consider uh, this morning. First of all, your sin will be found out. you follow what I'm saying? How many? Of you think, how many of you think you can hide from God? Come on now, I'm not the only one, right? How many of you think you can hide from God? I am the only one. I'd be willing to bet that you've all tried to hide from God. Yes? Yeah, there's a couple people on the front row here that... Yeah, we've all tried to hide from God, right? How foolish is it to think that we can hide from God, right? And eventually, just like Judah's sin, your sin will be found out. Did you notice all these caveats within the story, right? Tell me whose signet cord, tell me whose staff, tell me all these things. Who does this belong to? And he wants to burn her, right? He wants to destroy her because that's what the law says. Or think about Onan for a second. Was his, was his sin found out? Yeah. Isn't that the whole point of the story, church? Isn't that the whole point of Genesis? Think about this for a second, right? In Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, everything is as it's supposed to be. Everything was good or everything was very good, right? And it's very good when? In day 6, when God creates mankind in his image. It's good or it's very good. And then we get to chapter 3, when man does his own thing, when God says, don't eat from the tree, and man does what man does, and guess what happens? Then we have Cain and Abel, then we have the Noah account in chapters 6-9, through then we have the Tower of Babel. Do you get the picture of what the narrator of Genesis is saying? That one sin leads to Two sins that leads to four sins that leads to eight sins that leads to six. You get the idea, right? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Here's a secret for you. There are no little white lies. You guys know that phrase, right? Well, it's just a little... I wasn't completely truthful, but I told them... You see what I'm saying? Why are we told? Why Why does secular society, even in a courtroom... Why do they have to say, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth? Because you know why they add that phrase, the whole truth? Because some people hold back part of the truth. Right? Now I'm going to ask you again. How many of you try to hide from God? We all do. Right? Your hand should be raised. We all do. And you know, you know by your, what happens in the past, it's impossible to hide from God. And eventually, it's going to be found out. Second question. Something else I jotted down here for. It's not just sin will be found out. It's about how do you respond when someone needs grace? Well, it's easy to say I forgive them, right? It's easy to say I love them, right? But do we really? But do we really? I I heard this past week, and you probably have heard it a long time ago, but I, I heard it again this past week, and I shared it with Christian on the way to school one morning. And I said, you know, it's been said, and you guys check me on this, it's been said that we will judge others based upon what we think they should do. We will judge ourselves based upon our intent. You hear the difference? We will judge others based upon what we think they shall do or they should do. We will judge ourselves based upon our intent. Well, I just... I'm meant to do right. I'm going to get grace, right? In other words, we're going to give ourselves much more grace than we are to give somebody else. Right? Why wouldn't it be the other way around? You you guys remember the story in the New Testament where the Pharisees, the religious people, they bring the woman caught in adultery and they throw her down at Jesus' feet and they say, what? The Law of Moses says, kill her. Stone her. These are religious people. These are, people that have or these are people that you would think have experienced grace. Are they showing much grace? We're, we're quick to be the Pharisees, aren't we? We're quick to be the religious people to say, look at that sin. Look at that sin. But we're not so quick to look in the mirror and go, oh, I need to deal with this sin. You hear the difference? Judah says, bring her out and let's... What happens to something if you burn it? Nothing left, right? Completely disintegrate, gone, right? It, I, I, I think Judah, um, man, I think Judah's an example for all of us that not only is your sin found out, but you should be gracious because you've been given grace. A quick, quick thing about that. Um, How many of you love? You love something, right? You love some people, right? Why do you love? The quick answer is you've been loved. In other words, how do you know what love is? You've been loved, right? How many have been given grace? You've all been given grace. Why Why do you give give grace? Because you've been given grace, right? Um, There's a little book out not too long ago, called The Prayer of Jabez. Anybody remember that? First Chronicles, The Prayer of Jabez, right? It's a little book, pretty thin book. The whole point was not to God would enlarge my territory. The whole point was God give me a greater territory so that I could hoard it. No, that's not it. God give me a greater territory so that I could pass it on. God increase my territory so I could be a blessing to somebody else. You hear that? that? That's the Gospel, right? The Gospel is not about just getting something so that we could hang on to it. The Gospel is about getting love, getting grace, getting these good gifts from God so that we could show how good God is to others. Does that make sense? Do you follow what I'm saying? Right, Not to be the Judas of the world, not to be the Pharisees who throw the woman down at Jesus' feet and say the law of Moses says stone her. And you'll remember what Jesus responds with, right? He begins to write. We don't know what exactly He writes, but perhaps it's their own sin. And as they look over and see whatever they struggle with, the text says one by one they go away. And Jesus is left with this sinful woman. Sinful woman. And He says, where are your accusers? They're nowhere to be found, right? That's what He says. Well, that's what she says. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you hear that? There's truth there, right? Go and sin no more. That's the truth. But there's also grace. I think all too often we're quick to be the Pharisees, church. We're quick to say, stone her, burn her. That's what the law says. We're more righteous than everybody else. Um, I wish we were quicker to be about, neither do I condemn you. Right? That's what the world needs, right? That's what you need. That's what I need. I, I will offer to you this, this idea of grace and judgment is something that um, in our Bible study this morning we talked about this idea of this divide between church and society, and it's pretty obvious there's a, a divide between church and society. And all too often, whether it's a cop-out or an excuse or maybe it's even the truth, uh, the people I deal with that are from the world and society, they look at the church and, and think that we live such a holier-than-thou lifestyle. You can't just beat people over the head with the Bible expecting them to change. Can you? I mean, it really hadn't worked for me yet. And I don't, I don't, I don't know that Jesus does that. And yet we still need to speak the truth. We still need to say what's wrong is wrong. Fair enough? Right? I don't want you to think that I'm all about grace because I'm about grace, but I'm also about, I'm also about truth. I think we ought to be quick. We ought to be quick to love, but slow to condemn. We ought to be quick to love, but slow to condemn. We ought to be quick, quick, quick to love. But slow to condemn. One more thing that I want to point out to you before we finish this morning: uh, I mentioned to you this genealogy in Matthew that we all oftentimes skip over and move quickly through. Um, I don't think, I don't think that's there just as an accident. I, I think, I think God wrote through Matthew what's intended to be there, and this intention of Tamar, the Canaanite who, I mean, think about the irony of that, right? God can use even Tamar, and she's not the only woman in this genealogy, by the way, but she's probably not the one that you're going to put up on a pedestal and use as a hero. Does that make sense? right? And if God can use Tamar, the Canaanite, can he not use you wherever you happen to go? Wherever you happen to be, whether it's your family, whether it's your friends, whether it's your co-workers, whatever it is that you, he has in your path, could he not use you? And maybe he has used you. I wonder if Tamar ever experienced grace. I wonder if Tamar ever experienced the goodness of God's grace and recognized God for, for who he was. I think we as New Testament Christians, as I close, I think we as New Testament Christians ought to recognize that even within the messiness of life, even within the dysfunction that we have as individuals, as families, as a group of individuals, that God could do amazing, amazing things. And He does, right? I hope we will always give Him the honor and the glory that He deserves. If you haven't met Jesus today, if you never experienced that grace if you don't know about his love i pray that today is the day Um, if you have experienced that grace before and you find yourself um, thinking about more about the pharisaical things think about judgment more than grace i pray that today is the day that you will change as well My prayer would be that we see people as God sees people. My prayer is that we would love people as God loves people. My prayer is that we would serve people as Jesus serves people. May that be our testimony, not just today, but in days and weeks and years to come at Hillcrest Christian Church. Let's pray. Father, for your word, for your grace, for your mercy, um, beyond grateful. I'm grateful, Father, that you you use us despite who we are, that you love us despite who we are, that even when um, Jesus is hanging on the cross, uh, after he's been beaten, um, after he's been, uh, they've blasphemed him, they've they've uh, stuck a crown of thorns on his head, they've spit at his face, they've done everything they can, um, and yet he loves the way he does, to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Um, that's the gospel. I pray, God, that we would understand this uh, narrative of Judah and Tamar in a new way, that that there is something to be said for holiness, for righteousness. That's the expectation you have for all of us. And you, you know better than we do. We, we can't live up to that um, unless we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would see righteousness by way of Jesus in each of our lives. Help us to love as you love. Help us to give grace as you give grace. Help us to be about your business and not ours. In Christ's name, amen.